Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 196, Ensign Row. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Or, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, Mission Log, in the tradition of the Bajora. I'm Ken, Ray, Ken... And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we pick apart a single episode of Star Trek, looking for morals, meanings, messages, and trying to figure out if the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, Ensign Rowe. The first one with Ensign Rowe. Coming up, trivia. But first, lots of words about tiny ships. <laughs> That's how we have it written out, right? Just exactly. Lots of words, tiny ships. Exactly. Yeah, we, yeah, we have the privilege of talking about our sponsor again this week. It is the Star Trek Starships Collection. Uh, now, Ken, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks, and we've had the great pleasure of uh, sharing photos online and seeing photos of people who sent back to us of their ships. They're super cool. I wanted to talk a little bit today about how they actually make these things, mm-hmm. because it is way cool. I mentioned before that they are authorized by CBS, um, that they're available only from Eagle Moss collections, and that they actually source these back to the original CGI models from the various shows where they go back to reference materials from uh, from the physical models when those were available. And um, CBS actively reviews and approves these models. I have had the great pleasure of seeing some prototypes um, before they had actually been approved and sent into production. And uh, the amount of detail that they look at when they approve these things, looking at things like paint, the decals, you know, just the, the shade of paint on one of the models, all of that stuff gets looked over absolutely meticulously. And recently, you might have seen that Doug Drexler was online chiming in about developing an upcoming ship for the collection. That would be the Enterprise J so far in the future, we haven't even gotten to it yet. Way, way off in the future. Um, but it, it's sort of uh, cemented my feeling about these ships that they have people like Doug Drexler consulting on this collection. And he gets to say, like, yep, that's how I designed it. That's how this should look or this is wrong. Change that. And they are so attentive to that level of detail. So it's pretty remarkable that you get that. You, you get a collectible that is cared for that much and it's delivered right to your house. Yes, that part is cool. I will say really quickly, though, what you were talking about, um, how you'll have somebody say, yep, that's what I was thinking when I did this. That's what I was thinking when we designed that. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you get a lot of that stuff to go along with the ship as well, because each ship that you get, and you get two a month uh, when you sign up, um, each ship that you get comes with a magazine that tells you both about the ship sort of in the Star Trek universe, but then it also tells you about it in um, 
our universe, the real one, <laughs> where, <laughs> right, you know, right. they're talking about, you know, sort of the design elements and the reasons they might have done things and, yeah, pictures of, of, of models and um, of like the original models that you were talking about earlier. I mean, it's, it's yeah, getting the toy is neat. I don't want to call it a toy exactly, but I mean, they're durable enough too that you I mean you can actually, you know, run around the house and have one chase the other. <laughs> not saying I've done it. I'm not saying I haven't. <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, you're, but you're also, you're not just getting, you know, the thing, you're also getting stuff, you know, kind of around the thing, um, as far as like being able to learn more about it, being able to know more about it. Um, right. And they all come with a little stand as well. So you don't have to worry about, I mean, you know, don't throw them across the room or anything, but you don't have to worry about how you place them because they come with a little stand where you can just set it down and, and, and they're arranged in such a way that it looks like they're flying, but they are, you know, sturdy on the stand. So... Yeah, it's it's they're just they're a neat little thing. It's the perfect size to build a fleet on your desk until you get a hundred of them, and then you need a bigger desk. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and you can start your collection very easily. You can get the Enterprise seventeen oh one D for four ninety five, less than five bucks, and you will get this great model of the Enterprise D delivered to your home, free shipping. Shipping is included for your four ninety five, and after that, you will get two ships every month delivered directly to your door and you don't have to worry about where they are in the development of those ships because you start at issue number one so it's not like you have to track down that elusive one that you missed no no no. you're not going to miss any of them because you'll start right at the beginning and you'll keep getting these as they come out and these ships span every series every movie i'm amazed at the things that come out with can i tell you my favorite that that we haven't gotten to yet the antares Hmm. And you know why? Because why? that came from the animated series and then was retconned back into the original series for the uh, for the remastered episodes. I thought that was amazingly cool that they did that. So I will get a little Antares model to put on my desk. Very much looking forward to that day. That is very cool. If you want to have as much fun as John and I... I don't know why I sound wooden on that, because it actually is a whole lot of fun. Uh, the place to find out is uh, st-starships.com slash mission log. That is st-starships.com slash mission log. And, uh, yeah, we did actually receive uh, some pictures last week. Yeah, and I hope we get more. Yeah. I hope we do, too. Like our friend Steve, uh, who, mm -hmm. who puts together the amazing charts of the stuff that we talk about. You know, yes. did we like it? Did we not like it? What are the messages, morals, and meaning? What's the over/under on whether or not the next season's going to be any good? <laughs> right, stuff like that. Yeah, he actually sent a picture of uh, of his uh, of his Enterprise D. So, thank yep. you very much for that, sir. And then, um, if you want to send us, you know, pictures of the ships that you are getting, or other comments, or things like that, we're to the part where I say have pen and paper handy for this important information. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love that. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address, where you could send in the pictures of your awesome little ships. Missionlog at Roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, it is that time, John Champion's Trivia. All right, Ken. Today's episode, Ensign Row. Now, the script is written by Michael Piller, but the story credit goes to Michael Piller and Rick Berman. 
Yes, executive producer Rick Berman, who kind of uh, let this episode gestate along with some ideas that he contributed. And we actually have to thank Rick for making this story about Cardassians rather than Romulans. He felt probably wisely that we had had too much of the Romulans so far. So this would have been a very different story if we had ended up with that as a... (laughs) That's part of the plot line, I think. It might have satisfied yeah. one thing for you, though. You would have actually seen oh. the Romulans blow something up. I know, right? That would have been great. <laughs> or or they just would have turned around and said, well, we'll let this ship go through, but we'll be watching you. So yes. next time, watch out. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, directed by Les Landau, who we've mentioned before. He got his start in TV uh, doing shows like MacGyver, Sequest, uh, directed a number of episodes of Next Gen, and then did the uh, TV series uh, Weird Science. And then he went on to do more Star Trek like Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise. So he'll be around for a while. We'll talk about Les again. Um, Ken, last week I was very excited that we had a lot of location filming in Darmok in Bronson Canyon, which is just, you know, I could stand on my roof and look out and probably see Bronson Canyon. This week, Ken, I'm very excited to say that the location footage was shot in Bronson Canyon. Ah. In fact, like right next to where they shot last week. So uh, quite a bit of crossover there. You know, but, you know, if you find something you like, you just stick with it. Can I That's, ask a question really quickly? Yeah, sure. Are any of those structures actual structures, or did they have to go out and build all that stuff? Uh, I would say that probably 99% of that stuff is uh, built for the show. Now, there are structures out there, um, but usually it's just like, okay, here's a tiny little piece of a foundation of a building that was there 60 years ago. Okay. Um, So, you know, there might be like a little slab of concrete or something you kind of build upon right but there's really not much more than that because otherwise then you end up in like a parking lot i have no idea why it's so much more impressive to me to build all of that outside because Mm -hmm. i mean they're building on sound stages and stuff you know it's i mean they they do some incredible work with that sure when i saw what basically looked like a shanty town outside i'm like man the amount of work that went into that even though it did look like a shanty town right town town is still part of that you know yeah yeah. yeah, anyway. And there's a lot of detail on that Bajoran town. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right, now that Bajoran ship that gets destroyed is a model that we have seen before. It was the Hunsak ship in The Survivors, and it was Fajo's ship in The Most Toys. That model will be around a lot more. It keeps getting redressed and reused, so no, they didn't actually blow it up for this episode. Now, we have a lot of guest stars to talk about this week. Uh, that's Ken Thorley as Mott the Barber, not the Hoople. <laughs> He'll be back. He shows up in uh, Men in Black, Herbie Enthusiasm, the remake of My Favorite Martian, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mostly in smaller roles. He is, you know, he is. Have you seen the movie Defending Your Life? I love that movie and I cannot place him. So please <laughs> enlighten me here. Um, all nude. No. Yeah. You know, those uh, strip clubs out by the airport. You yeah. should just say nude. He yeah. coined the term. All new. That's that his work. Business went up 100%. That's, that's great. <laughs> He's the guy at the sushi place. I actually went back that and... Is that is one of my favorite movies. Honestly, the first the first day I saw it... And granted, I used to be able to see movies for free because I had worked in a movie theater, but mm. I, I saw it twice in one day. Oh, nice. I cannot yeah. count the number of times I've seen that movie. 
I really like that movie. If people haven't seen it, Albert Brooks and uh, Meryl Streep, and it's just so good. Yeah. And, and Rip Torn. Yes, and uh, and Lee Grant. Yeah. And Ken yeah. Thorley. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> As the guy <laughs> at the sushi counter. Yeah. All right. We also have Jeff Hayinga. He is Orta. Now, he'll be back for appearances in Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. Outside of that, you may catch him in In the Heat of the Night, Matlock, Law and Order, Jag, and the movie Other People's Money. Now, Admiral Kennelly is played by Cliff Potts. He has numerous TV guest roles, as well as recurring roles on Dallas, Marcus Welby, MD, Lou Grant, and Hotel. In the sci-fi world, he may be best known for his role in Silent Running as not Bruce Dern. Now, <laughs> Was he one of the little robots? No, no, he wasn't. Okay. One of the Lord. He, was, he was neither Huey nor Dewey nor Louie. Uh, he is actually uh, one of the guys that Bruce Dern kills. Oh, oh sorry, spoiler. <laughs> that movie is more than 40 years old. Um, we also have Frank Collison, who plays Gull Dolak. He's a very recognizable character actor. He's got a massive theater career, starting really from the time that he was a baby, working for his parents in the theater. Now, uh, film and TV might have seen him in... M. Night Shyamalan's The Village and The Happening. He had recurring roles in Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, Carnival, and My Name is Earl, just to name a very few of his credits. We have Scott Marlowe. He is Keeve Fowler. Uh, he got his start in Hollywood playing a lot of rough, disaffected youth roles in the 50s. Fast forward a little bit, and he shows up on Have Gun, Will Travel, Route 66, The Outer Limits, Gunsmoke, TJ Hooker. He was a regular on the TV series Valley of the Dolls in the 90s. And I know what you're thinking. There was a TV series called Valley of the Dolls in the 1990s. Yes, apparently there was. Um, and he must have had an absolutely fascinating personal life. He has been romantically linked to both Natalie Wood and Tab Hunter. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hollywood was different back then, or maybe not so different. And finally, we have Michelle Forbes as the title character, Ensign Roe Laren. Now, we already saw Michelle Forbes in Half a Life, and we talked about her career a little bit then. Um, and Ken, you actually wanted to mention The Guiding Light. And, yeah. and I'm trying to place my finger on why. I'm not a big soap opera watcher. Uh, well, it takes us all the way back to the very first uh, broadcast episode of Star Trek. Okay, which would be The Man Trap, the man September trap. 1966. Yeah. Right. You may remember a young, um, can't remember the character's name, mm -hmm. but Michael Zaslow, the Zaz. Oh, the Zaz. Wanders outside, eats something, dies, except it turns out, no, he's actually killed by Nancy, which is actually a salt-sucking monster, or salt-sucking monster, excuse me. Right. Uh, yeah, so he played uh, on The Guiding Light. He was Roger Thorpe, the you know scary rapist, clown, stepfather, sometimes good guy, usually not. Um, they all. Yeah, and and Michelle Forbes was on The Guiding Light as well. And I believe they might have actually, I don't know if they ever, they may have crossed around the same time. I'm not sure if the Zaz was already off of uh, The Guiding Light by the time she was on it. But wow. she was on it in the 90s. So yeah, there's a total Star Trek tie-in. Uh, you know, in addition to the fact that she's actually on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that. There, there's that one. That, that's, she was already on Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the bigger Star Trek tie-in. But if you want to go, if you want to go old school, if you want to go back to TOS, right. there's a direct link there uh, to the episode that we watched this week and the very first broadcast episode of Star Trek. Now, uh, Michelle Forbes, we, we've talked a bit about her career, but, you know, uh, highlights, there's so many good shows and good roles that she's been in. Uh, she was in the reboot, uh, remake, reimagining of Battlestar Galactica in an 
awesome character arc, um, Admiral Kane. And uh, she, of course, was in the movie California, which you will never watch again. Yep. She was in The Killing. She was in the fantastic HBO show In Treatment. So there is a lot of great work from Michelle Forbes. And you can understand that, you know, the staff and crew of Star Trek would want her back after they met her working on Half a Life. So this role of Ensign Rowe was created with the intention of bringing in someone cut from a very different cloth as the other kind of regular cast members on the show. And they all liked Michelle Forbes and the work that she already did. So with that, Ensign Rowe will, of course, come back for more appearances on Star Trek The Next Generation. It is a tale of intrigue, of conspiracy, of hardship, of prejudice. This is the tale of Ensign Rowe. Prologue. Captain McCard is getting a haircut and an earful from the best barber in Starfleet, Mr. Mott. The conversation is cut short when the ship receives a distress call from the Solarian 4 colony close to the Cardassian border. Contact has been lost and the Enterprise is on its way. They do receive another message, though. This is the Bajora. We claim responsibility for the destruction of the Federation colony on Solarian 4. As long as we are without our homeland, no one will be safe in this sector. Act 1. The Enterprise is at Lya Station Alpha, dropping off survivors from the Solarian 4 colony and meeting with Admiral Kennelly about the Bajoran terrorist attack. Kennelly's got some virus he picked up from a Cardassian liaison, but he'll muddle through. Here's what's going down. The Bajoran homeworld was annexed by the Cardassians 40 years ago. The Bajorans have become a sort of nomadic people, looking for some place in the galaxy to live and treated poorly just about every place they find. But there's this new splinter group that's decided to put up a fight rather than doing the nomad thing. That group is led by a guy named Orta. Picard is to get Orta in line by any means necessary. Tell him if he behaves, we'll deal with the Cardassians. Quietly. Back-channel stuff. It'll just take time. The conversation is interrupted by a call from Commander Riker. He says there's a new officer beaming aboard. Kennelly says, oh yeah, I meant to tell you. I've assigned Ensign Roe Laren to your ship. Hey, look at that. The veins on Picard's forehead really pop out, don't they? He says she is not fit for duty, let alone fit for the Enterprise. But Kennelly's mind is made up. She's Bajoran. He's talked it over with her. He got her out of prison for this. She will be on this mission. At Picard's command, Riker welcomes Rolaire on aboard. Well, greets her. Well, tells her to take off her earring. Act 2. Riker is practically yelling to Picard, if not at him, about Rolaren's assignment. No one will want to work with her. Picard says everyone will have to deal with it, and it won't be for long. And here she is. Ensign Laren. Whoops! It's actually Ensign Roe. Family name before individual name. It's a Bajoran thing. Picard and Riker basically make it clear that they don't want her there. She says she's only there because it's better than prison. Picard starts to give her the be-all-you-can-be speech when she says she's heard it, she's fine, let's just do this and be done, and with that, she walks out of the meeting. Huh. The Enterprise is approaching the Valo system, where a lot of Bajorans have settled. They plan to meet Jazz Holtza, an ad hoc leader of the Bajora who's had diplomatic dealings with Starfleet. But Rose says he's not really a leader, and he can't get them close to Orta. She suggests going to a different camp on a different planet and finding a guy named Keeve Fowler. Not a diplomat, a leader. Recent history has not been kind to the Bajora. 
Picard says they were accomplished in architecture and philosophy when humans were barely standing erect. But the camp on Valo 2 is ramshackle. The people are in need of basic necessities. Recent history has not been kind. Keith Fowler seems nice enough, though he's not inclined to help Picard and his people. Where was the Federation when the Cardassians were attacking and torturing the Bajora, driving them from their planet? Hiding behind the Prime Directive, that's where. Now they want to get involved because of one attack against a Federation outpost? Keefe says maybe they should have attacked the Federation years ago. He asks Ro what she thinks. She thinks he's getting high on the small amount of power he has at the moment. Shut up and listen. Picard makes his pitch. Thanks to our treaty, we can work diplomatically on getting the Cardassians in line, on getting the Bajora a decent place to live. Keeve isn't buying until Picard also makes sure that the immediate needs of the camp are met. Food, blankets, those kinds of things. Keeve is impressed. He tells Picard that he'll be in touch if he hears anything helpful. Picard surveys the situation of the refugees. No way they should be living in such conditions. Rose says she couldn't. She wouldn't which is why she ran away. Her people are lost and defeated. She says she never will be. Act 3. Whoa, that was fast. Keith Fowler has arranged a meeting between the Enterprise and Orta. They'll meet him tomorrow. Ensign Rowe is hanging in 10 Ford, alone. Beverly and Deanna try joining her, but she rebuffs their attempt. Jordy and Guinan are discussing Rowe. Jordy says, intolerance, 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 and Guinan says... I'm going to make friends with her. Of course, once approached, Rose says she wants to be alone. But Guinan says, uh, no, you don't. If you did, you wouldn't be in a bar full of people. You'd be somewhere alone. Here we get a tiny bit more of Rose's backstory. The ruling in her court-martial was that she didn't follow orders. Eight people died as a result. But she also didn't defend her actions at her court-martial, and she never told the full story. Anyway, Guinan says they're friends now. Gotta go. Bye. Just as well, Ro gets a call that she takes in her quarters. It's Admiral Kennelly asking for a report. She says everything is going as he predicted. Next day, Picard, Data, Worf, and Troy are waiting to go meet Orta. They're just waiting for Ro, who is... Late? No, actually, she's early. Six hours early. That's how long ago she left the Enterprise. The four beam down to the same place to which she beamed. Look around, look around, and the away team is captured. Two by two, apparently by Orta and his people. Act four. Orta and Ro Laren make the scene. Ro says she came down early to try to avoid a confrontation, though Picard is not impressed. As for Orta, he's been treated poorly by the Cardassians in the past. That is putting it very mildly. Half of his face is gone. His vocal cords were cut. Not surprisingly, he says he's not interested in peace. But he also says it was not the Bajora that attacked the outpost on Solarian 4. Back on the Enterprise, senior staff is starting to consider what Orta said, that the Solarian destruction wasn't the work of the Bajora. Roe will have to consider this with some of her much-valued alone time, though. Picard is upset with her unauthorized meeting with Orta and confines her to quarters for the remainder of the mission. Her brooding is interrupted by a visit from Guinan, her friend in whom she confides, to an extent. She feels like she has no control, like everyone is pulling her strings. Also, there's more going on than anyone on the ship realizes, and she has no idea who to trust. Guinan says her life was once saved because she trusted one man. 
Cut to Captain Picard's ready room, where Guinan has brought Roe Laren. Picard is upset. Roe is supposed to be confined to quarters, but Guinan says, Roe has something to tell Picard, and Picard should listen. Picard doesn't seem so inclined until Guinan says the magic words, She's my friend. Now Picard seems so inclined. Here's what's really going down. Admiral Kennelly is running two ops. There's Picard's mission, try to negotiate with Orta. Then there's Roe's secret mission, get Orta to stop the attacks on the Federation outposts by offering ships and weapons and things to help the Bajora fight the Cardassians. Picard can't believe it, but Rose says, at the very least, check the communication logs. There you'll find that Kennelly called me last night. My trip off the ship wasn't unauthorized. He authorized it. Side note, you get that this will be a violation of everything for which the Federation stands, right, Ensign? She says yes, but she also tells the story of watching her father tortured to death by the Cardassians when she was seven. She left the experience not angry, but ashamed of her father's weakness. Eventually, she realized that that sort of thinking was wrong. Then, she was given an opportunity by a Starfleet admiral to make her people strong. So, she took it. She never made the offer to Orta, though. Once he told her that it wasn't the Bajora that attacked the Salarian outpost, she figured she better slow down and figure out what was actually going on. She's also not spoken to Admiral Kennelly since their return. Now Picard has an idea. They need to get Orta to agree to go along with their plan. They'll take him back to the camps and watch what happens. Sounds like a crappy plan. I'm guessing there's actually more to it. Let's find out. Act 5. Here's what's going down. Picard's diplomatic efforts have worked. He reports to Admiral Kennelly that the Enterprise will escort the Bajora ship with Orta and his people back to their camp. Kudos from Kennelly. The Enterprise makes rendezvous with the Bajora ship, and they're on their way. Except for those two Cardassian ships suddenly in their way. They tell the Enterprise to back off so they can destroy the Bajoran ship. That demand is followed by an order from Admiral Kennelly to withdraw. Protecting the Cardassian Treaty is more important to him than protecting the Bajora. With that, the Enterprise does withdraw, and the Cardassians do blow up the Bajoran ship. Here's what really went down. All that! Except Orda and his people weren't on the ship. No one was. It was being flown by remote. Now here's an interesting question. How did the Cardassians know that Orta was supposed to be on that ship? It was Kennelly. He told them. And why not? The Bajora are terrorists. He was just opening the door for the Cardassians to take care of their problem. Of course, the Bajora didn't destroy the outpost on Solarian 4. Picard suspects the Cardassians did that to get the Federation's help in finding Orta so they could rub him out. Strolling through a Bajoran camp, Picard and Roe talk over what'll happen to Kennelly. Picard figures he'll face court-martial. Roe wonders whether she should arrange her own transport back to Lyas Station Alpha, since the Enterprise won't be going there for a while. But Picard talks her into staying with the Enterprise. She's not a great officer, not yet, but he thinks she could be. She says she'll stay under one condition. She puts her earring, an emblem of her Bajoran heritage, back in. Then it's two to beam up. The end. I like the opening of this. I, I like the, the peek into the lower decks and going to the barber shop again. And, and we meet Mott, who's a, who's a new guy, who's a barber. Yes. But he's also a bullion. Yeah. 
I'm starting to think they just replicate Boleans to stick them in there <laughs> because just bully, it, it, the, the barber thing is just a Bolian thing. Again, yeah. it's just Boleans or barbers. Why does that bother you as much as it does? First, they have no hair. Right. Um, okay. Second of all, you know, we, we kind of you can make an argument about the, the Klingon monoculture and, and all these other places where you have a monoculture. And now you've got a monoculture of barbers. I mean, he is, according to Riker, the best barber in Starfleet. The best. The best yeah. barber in Starfleet. I don't think yeah. Patrick Stewart has enough hair that he needs the best barber in Starfleet. I think it was actually bothering yeah, him that much if the if the unsolicited advice of Mott the Barber mm-hmm. was bothering him that much. He could just let it grow out a bit. Yeah, he probably could. He probably yeah. could. Yeah, I mean, but I do like this idea of people who aren't constantly engaged in heroics you know just you know they're, they're doing their thing they, he's cutting hair he's not making life or death decisions but he's got opinions sure and i i, I get that um but it, it when you do a scene like that it feels more like a ship away from home for a long time um and i hope we get to see the bowling alley and the ice cream parlor next <laughs> and by the way did you notice that there was a vulcan in the seat down from picard i did notice that yeah, so there's more than just Dr. Salar on board, Dr. Salar, wherever you may be. Yeah, we've seriously <laughs> only seen like five uh, Vulcans on the Enterprise, though, right? I don't mean like mm-hmm. when, not, not like when Sarek came, but I want to say no, in, in no. the very first episode, an encounter at Farpoint, I want to say we actually saw a family of Vulcans. Yeah. Like yeah. mom and dad and a kid. That, that, that's a family, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, you know, there was Dr. Salar, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, this guy. Yeah, and then this guy. Yeah, that's he about is, it. Yeah. Um, now, we do have to talk about the uh, Bajoran earring that isn't regulation, and yet Worf walks around with his, like, Chewbacca bandolier <laughs> Klingon sash all the time. Yeah, good point, that. I actually wondered, I, like, was it difficult for Riker? So, mm-hmm. Michelle Forbes, I don't. I think we may have talked about this before. We might have. I, 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 I Either on the mic or not. Yeah. Well, I know off mic we have. No right. question. But on mic, right. I, we may have said, I, I, I personally just find her to be just a lovely, lovely woman. Oh, yeah. Now, it doesn't usually even take her being a lovely, lovely woman for Riker to be interested, right? Hey, new woman on the Enterprise. I got right. dibs is pretty much right. it. But, you know, this is Ro Laren, and so he's got to be mean. I found myself wondering, was Riker like, well, I have to be mean to her, but she's kind of cute, but I have to be <laughs> gruff with her, but she is a woman and I'm Riker. <laughs> oh, but the earring. Okay, no, good. Something to fixate on. Something to yell at. Good. Ah, right. 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 Boy, that must have, it must have taken every ounce of <laughs> self-control. You know? Has to have killed him. Man. What's a fine yeah. looking woman like you to, oh, by the way, take off the earring and, uh, right. and you're in trouble. You want to drink? I, I jotted down something here that I, I thought that there was a good question inserted into the story about the Federation's relative position of non-interference. Um, did they indeed just stand by while the Bajorans were in need? Because apparently this thing has been going on for 40 years. Yeah. And do they just get to say, yeah, sorry, it's not uh, it's not our thing. And uh, and I guess that is what they did, according to Keeve. It is a bit weird, actually, because Picard stands there and says, um, with their level of technology, they should be able to live better than this. And I'm thinking, when we met the Uxbridges, yeah, we gave them a replicator, right? We say, oh, here, we we got we got extras here, take that. But then when it's like a whole planet of people need replicators, I guess it's like, oh, well, we no, we don't have nearly that many, so yeah. sorry. 
Yeah. Yeah, you'd yeah. think there'd be like a like a red delta or something. There wouldn't be a red mm-hmm. cross, I guess, at that point, or a red crescent, maybe, although it depends on who you ask, I suppose. Right. You'd right. think there'd be like a red delta, where it'd just be like, yeah, we're we're just dropping off food and blankets. Just, you right. know, don't worry. We're not doing anything here. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because their job is actually pretty easy in some respect, because I, I like that Keeves says, you know, we don't even have blankets to stay warm at night. And Picard gives the order, make sure these people have enough blankets. And I'm thinking, how many people? A couple of hundred. OK, computer, make 200 blankets. Done. Right. Done. We literally have that part of it done in about five seconds. I know we're getting caught on a technicality here, though, but I mean, it should be borne in mind that the Bajoran homeworld was behind Cardassian lines. So the Bajorans obviously weren't members of the Federation. So, mm-hmm. I mean, were they going to go to war to, to, you know, stop the annexation of a planet sure. with which they're not associated at all? Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, that, it, that, it, it sounds horrible. It actually seems like yeah. an absolute, it seems like a horrible thing that they would just sort of stand by and let that happen. But yeah, apparently they did. Although, I mean, Starfleet at least is welcome to, is welcoming to the Bajoran or to the Bajora because, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, uh, Kennelly says, I want Rolaren on the ship. And Picard's like, no. And, he, and, he's, and Kenley's like, yeah, she's Bajoran. And Picard's like, please, throw a rock. You'll hit a Bajoran in Starfleet. There are plenty. I don't need her. <laughs> right. So, I mean, apparently there, I mean, there is a way out in a way, although all you have to do is get out of Cardassian space first, I suppose, and then actually be good enough to be in Starfleet. Yeah, it's right. not quite the same, is it? No. Hmm. No, no. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a rough situation. And, and I like the sort of the nuanced use of the word annex. Yeah. Uh, not not that we invaded, not that we took over, <laughs> took not that over. we displaced people. Yeah. We we just sort of we we needed a bigger closet. Questions that will not be answered you know? on this show. Questions that will not be answered nope. in this episode of Mission Log. Why that world? I mean, is it mm-hmm. does it have like sure. the best water slides? Yeah. Does it have like the, you know, the the nicest rivers? What is it about it? Or is it just the Cardassians were like, Oh, those people look like they might be trouble if we don't, you know, scatter them to four winds, let's go ahead and do that. And of all the things that are worrisome about these things that cannot be answered here, it, it, there is a, a bit of pause that one is given when you think, OK, well, in, in the future, when we have the ability to travel faster than light and we can get to all these planets because the galaxy is teeming with these M-class planets and we've got colonies everywhere. And yet there are still people who get into turf wars and want to displace other people. Like you could literally go anywhere. You could literally go anywhere. <laughs> and, you know, and he's just like, nope, I like that planet, and I don't like the people who are on it. All right. Mm-hmm. Completely different question. This is another one of those goofy yes. questions that the reason is because they needed it to be this way in the script. Mm-hmm. So, Rolaren is in a bar, but she wants to be alone, except mm-hmm. she doesn't really want to be alone, because if she really wanted to be alone, she'd go someplace to be alone, right? Yeah. So, N walks the empath counselor, <laughs> who says... <laughs> Are we disturbing you? And, you know, she says, yes. And you got to figure if Guinan is right and what Ro Laren really wants is to not be alone on some level, Deanna Troy in a normal episode would hear that, hear it, sense it, feel it, whatever it is she does as an mm-hmm. empath. Yeah. Not this week, though. <laughs> it's almost like they were de- they just nope. had to be polite. Nope. Like she and Beverly are like, oh, God, she's by herself. We really should go say something. Uh-huh, but then what if we have to sit there? Oh, maybe she won't ask us to. Okay. <laughs> Let's do well, it. Well, you know what? That would make Deanna, that would put Deanna Choi in lockstep with everybody else on the crew of the Enterprise except for Guinan then. Except <laughs> for know? Guinan, yeah. Same attitude. 
same attitude starting out just like oh yeah well i'll say hi but i'm not gonna like it and neither are you most people want to be <laughs> to say hi what did what did so, what did jordy say if i'm ever on an away mission with her i won't turn my back yeah she yeah. doesn't belong in starfleet she doesn't belong in that uniform oh. something along those lines rough those yeah. are rough words but you know uh interesting stuff about Guinan that are revealed here uh Guinan was in serious trouble a long time ago and got saved by Picard that that's the reveal the implication we see with that very close edit there and uh, I think we'll see later if that was foreshadowing or if it was just a vague allusion to a story we may never hear but kind of serves to uh, to further their tight bond mm-hmm. so Interesting idea there. There's always been some sort of implication that there was something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we've never gotten a clear idea of what. Sort of along yeah. your your Bolian Barber thing, I like mm-hmm. the fact there was there was a really wonderful. The rules do not apply to Guinan, you know, and I don't yeah. always like that. It always feels sometimes it feels a little too like it feels a little too somehow. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that, you know, she knows that something has to happen between Rolaren and Captain Picard. So she takes Rolaren to Captain Picard and Captain Picard says she is supposed to be in her quarters. And Guinan says she can go back when she's done talking to him. <laughs> right. I love that. Right. Like, OK, I love that you guys wear your little suits and you got the pips and you have your, you, know, you say jump, I say how high theoretically thing. Yeah. But, but this yeah. is important. So tell you what, you can go back to playing, playing Simon Says when this is done. <laughs> in the meantime there's a more important thing here and I actually I really liked that I mean uh, Picard is a man who is not used to being challenged right yeah he, he's captain of a starship at this point and certainly we've seen him challenged from time to time but he's really not used to being challenged and then in walks this woman who's like I'm sorry do you sign my check in 10 for no okay well then let me go ahead and tell you what I need to tell you and then you know you guys can go back to that later well, it's a clever bit of writing. I think you need that kind of character because Picard otherwise would be so, so unbreakable, mm-hmm. you know. And when you do introduce and we'll get into this later, but when you do introduce a character who outranks him, there's usually a problem with that character. So you're still pulling for Picard. Mm-hmm. But when you have Guinan, who's somebody who's likable, and who's relatable, you know, just a person who talks like a person, I, I, you know, I, this show would be very different if you didn't have that. Um, otherwise, you'd have to really rewrite those scenes between, say, Picard and Beverly as a confidant and, and maybe even Riker at a certain point uh, between Picard and Riker oh. to be to kind of humanize uh, Picard a bit. I would think it would be Deanna, actually. The only problem is it can be her, oh, sure, especially, yeah. especially when yeah. she can't read off of somebody. No, I don't actually want to be alone, despite what I say. I mean, the no, problem no, I, I think she, she could read that. I you, think she could. Well, I think in a normal week she could. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, honestly, if she has a case of, uh, of um, uh, what did we used to call it? Bones-itis. Well, the gumbification of bones, I guess. I mean, mm. there's mm. a little bit of a gumbification here, right? She can read anything off anybody, oh, unless we need her not to right now. Maybe the audience right. will forget that she's an empath because Lord knows we have a time or two. No, I, I honestly think that she probably could read that and she just didn't want to get into the conversation. <laughs> so, That's my, you know. These are not office hours. I'm not playing, right? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. thank goodness. Let me get my own drink. Uh, there's a funny little bit of writing here. Um, um, Picard says, I'm hopeful that the purpose behind the conspiracy will reveal itself in the next few hours. And I feel like that is telegraphing to the audience at least until the end of Act Five, <laughs> you know, like he's really saying, "Okay, we're winding it down now." So I'm really hoping this will become to clear to me and to you 
And uh, we'll just set our watches by that. Um, he also had another great point that I liked. He's having this argument with uh, Admiral Kennelly that, um, you know, Kennelly's position really reads as treaties being more important to people. And more, I'm sorry, I more like, important to or more important than? More important than. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Kennelly's position that point very much is so and uh, and he says you know you're not seeing the big picture and i love picard's reply well i just see a different big picture um it's a great scene not only because uh it's a nice witty battle in which the the cards are all in picard's favor at that point um but also because we sort of know what Picard knows. I like seeing Kennelly being played uh, in the way that he is, but but it is a, uh, it is a nice bit of Star Trekism for Picard to put people in a higher regard than the treaty at that point. Um, And speaking of that, I really like that last scene with Roe and Picard. We needed Picard to have a bit of an arc with Roe. We needed for him to come around. Otherwise, boy, would it just be uncomfortable the next time she's on the show. In the tradition of the Pajura, I think I want to change my name. From now on, please address me as computer. The... I mentioned a moment ago uh, Picard's, well, relationship with people who outrank him. We've seen some people in Starfleet who are uh, not too great, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, Admiral Satie <laughs> maybe maybe needs some deep analysis, <laughs> um, you know? We, we've got, uh, we've got Wait, some... which one was Satie? Uh, I thought Satie was the one that, that said, yeah, keep track of the Romulan Klingon thing. Which one was Satie? Admiral Satie is from the Drumhead. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember yeah. which one it was that sort of gave him the green light then to set his um, his tachyon net. Oh, yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. so we did actually have a decent uh, admiral at that point. We did have yeah. one. Yeah. We've had one yeah, decent yeah. admiral. But yeah. yeah, you can go back to Admiral Decker. Yeah. Uh, go back to whoever the admiral was that set Kirk up with the uh, the ultimate computer. The ultimate just, computer. <laughs> just pick pick a Commodore and yeah. come. You're going to have problems. And the thing that occurs to me here is that we have a real problem with Starfleet in some way. We we kind of had a running joke, like you mentioned in the original series, where all the Commodores were just horrible jerks. And I don't mean the band, the Commodores. I love those Commodores. But all the Commodores we saw in TOS were just horrible and had no business being in the positions they were in. Or at least they earned the position and then they just became horrible after they adopted that position. Right. So now we've had multiple indications that the top brass at Starfleet are either at best clueless or at worst malfeasant. And and I'm starting to look at the Enterprise, at least this Enterprise, in a really different way. Um, it's less a representation of the best of humanity and really this strange anomaly. It's this perfect little bubble full of Mm do-gooders, people you can trust, people who do a good job, people who can size up a moral situation and and try to come to a, a logical decision that is for the net good in the end. Kennelly isn't evil. But he's misguided and he's gullible as all get out. 
um, it, it's really kind of disturbing at that point. Now, for all those reasons, I, I really like that scene in the conference room where the senior staff is talking about which Bajoran diplomat to talk with, mm-hmm. because I think it kind of illustrates my point. Like they're operating on this very high level and they just think about things like, oh, well, well, we can trust these people because this guy's a good dancer and he, he, he speaks well. And that's the world that we live in. And then it just doesn't matter because Roe has a much better idea because she sees that all this high level talk is completely separated from the reality on the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, I, I do realize that's before we have the reveal that Roe is sort of operating under false pretenses here. She needs to lead them exactly where they need to go. But I think that moment is a good illustration of maybe not what's wrong with the Enterprise, but what is so different about the Enterprise. And it, this episode, for some reason in particular, really struck me with that. Because I just thought, oh man, Kennelly is is clueless. And he's so misguided. And he would actually maintain and forge deeper this treaty with people who are clearly not looking out for the best interest of others. So, um... Yeah, I, I I don't quite know what to make of that. Well, define uh, looking out for the best interests of others, though. I mean, he's preventing a shooting war, right? Sure, and that's Just and that's what he sees as the most important. I mean, he says the most important thing. And there's actually a line: the most important thing. Uh, Picard's top priority is to protect the Cardassian Treaty. At mm-hmm. that point, what's interesting yeah. to me is you say that we have a problem in Starfleet, and I begin to wonder if we actually have a problem on Star Trek at this point. Mm-hmm. Um. In terms of production, we're now a few months away from Gene's death, right? Uh, not even. Actually, I misspoke recently. I said that uh, Gene passed away in December of 91. It was actually late October of 91. And this episode aired in early October of 91. So we're, okay. we're weeks away. So you got to yeah. figure, though, when production on this was going on, he's not nearly as involved as he had been. Yeah. yeah. Right? Okay. It seems to me that it's possible that we are now passing out of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying, you know, that there isn't a lot to be gleaned from this episode, but we have like a like we have we have like a Klingon High Council thing going on here, right? Mm. Um Kennelly's not going to do what he well, hmm, what's the best way to put it? He's basically gonna do whatever he has to do to keep the peace. Yeah. He's gonna forget who they are, he's going to forget what they're supposed to be, and he's gonna keep the peace instead. Not unlike the leader of the High Council offering Warp discommendation to keep the Empire from ripping itself to shreds. Right. Um, he's gone now from believing in the prime directive, believing in not interfering, to thinking that he has to do whatever is going to keep the wheels on the wagon and keep the wagon rolling, right? Mm-hmm. It's reprehensible. And yeah. it's a lesson that we still need today. I mean, right now there are people willing to do things that many would see as truly un-American, and, and their defense for, for, for those things would be USA, USA. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. If you, and if you question their actions, uh, suddenly you're seen as un-American. So, yeah. right. You know, we go again to the "be what you say you are" sort of argument, or try at least to be, you know, the best that you can possibly be. And and there's nothing wrong with that argument. I mean, we we've got that all the way back to, oh golly, the Corbin might maneuver, right? Yeah. Here, sure. Here's the thing, sure. though. That's never what Starfleet was supposed to be. The starting point of Starfleet was, look what we can do. Look how far we can go, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we were supposed to, it, it, it seems to me, from stuff I've heard and from stuff I've heard you say and, you know, other stuff, 
um, that we were supposed to get past all of this in Roddenberry's mind. We were supposed to get past all of this. And remember, his optimism was so boundless that he thought doing a show about a kid mourning the passing of his mother would be passe, because the future is going to be so cool that even that wouldn't bother anybody who's like in the club, right? Right, right. So we're getting now to a point where if all you're getting from upstairs is incompetence, right, you're lucky at that point. We're, yeah. getting, we're getting to a point in Starfleet now where you cannot trust what's coming from upstairs, which means mid-level management in Starfleet, you know, Picard, Riker, can't trust the people above them. And where Starfleet, where the Enterprise has always been the stand-in for us, we can't trust anybody above ourselves at this point. And, and I yeah. know that seems like a long way to go. And look, we're only halfway through, like as we record this, this episode is about the halfway point for all the Star Trek we've had. And Star Trek shows no sign of slowing down. In fact, it's gearing back up in ways it hasn't in over a decade, again, as we mm -hmm. record this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to talk about, oh, and this is where it all fell apart. Well, no, but I mean, I, it, there's, there's, it, it feels like there's a change going on here. And so, and, and maybe I've actually act accidentally skipped to the end. But when you say there's a problem in Starfleet, yeah, there is. But I think it's worth noting, we're also now starting to see, it seems to me, a real change in the way that Star Trek is handled. I think you're going to get more long-form story. I think you're going to get a lot more. Well, we know you're going to get more long-form story. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be as weird to have an admiral come in who's sort of shady at this point. And and that was always supposed to be, those were the Romulans. Those were the Klingons. Those were, you know, whatever random alien society we came across. A Taste of Armageddon, that was a whole new race of people that we had never heard of before. Because we don't have those kind of problems anymore. Other people do. Here's your starting point. Right. Your starting point is everything's going to be awesome for us. And there are things we need to watch out for, though, but they're not going to be things that we're going to have to watch out for in those future us's because those future us's, they work. They got past it. Here's some other things along the road, though, that we're going to keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I think what you're hitting is, is partly an unfortunate reality of the writing that – you know, trying to come up with conflict that is internal as well as external. So it's not just the bad guy of the week, but the, there is some some drama, something for the crew that we know to deal with. Um, but then how many times you go back to that well where you have the either evil or misguided or confused, wh whatever tags you want to put on that that authority figure that strangely surprises Picard. Mm -hmm. But doesn't surprise us in the audience, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, Picard should hopefully if, if he's, you know, had a good experience at Starfleet up until now, um, maybe be surprised by people like this who outrank him, who uh, make horrible decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but then you kind of have to look back at just his time on the Enterprise the the you know fifth year going into it as far as the you know our sort of real time watching of Star Trek the Next Generation and think huh you know I've encountered so many people who outrank me who are terrible in fact I had to uh, in fact I had to blow the heads off of a few of them when I went back to Earth that one time <laughs> in fairness you know? they were being controlled by something else yes they were yes they were yeah. I, there are a lot of other conversations I have around this episode. I, I, I feel like, 
you know, there might be an opportunity here to go back to a conversation that we had when we covered the high ground, when we were talking about what is a terrorist versus what is somebody who is doing what they feel is right mm-hmm. from their point of view, their, their, their political point of view to, to end what they see as, as an injustice. This whole thing is a difficult situation, but I feel like it's eased a little bit by the fact that we already see the Cardassians as enemies. You know, it's a little bit unfair that as a TV show, they're the reptiles and we've already had a tense run in with them. And the Bajorans are much more human like, which what seems to be Star Trek code for these people are OK. We can trust them. <laughs> you know, it, it really is um, when you when you get a script that says, OK, here, here's the new uh, uh, alien of the week and uh, they're not trustworthy and they're, they're kind of maybe a little evil and they're out to get this other race. Well, then Michael Westmore, bless him, looks at that and goes, huh, I'm going to do this really intense lizard reptile thing that makes the Cardassians absolutely terrifying. You know, it's a very different thing from, say, the at one time terrifying looking uh, Horda that does nothing but destroy things in its path. And then we realize that it's actually the kindly benevolent creature that it is. So there is something here that the, the political complexity and maybe the moral and ethical complexity gets a little more separated out than maybe it could have or should have been now. Rick Berman and and other people involved with this show have said that this episode is not about any specific modern day political parallel, but you can't help but see that these situations are happening all around the world. And, and in the U.S. at least, I think the parallel situation that's best known to us is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't feel qualified in any way to address it. Kind of like you did when we were talking about transgender issues and we were talking about the host. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just sort of a, a level of complexity that has political and social ramifications that is just absolutely beyond what I feel like you and I can address in this tiny little podcast that talks about nerdy Star Trek things. <laughs> but um, I, I would like to share. We have a listener, Judy, who lives in Tel Aviv, and she writes wonderful thought-provoking detailed emails to us and I, and I feel bad because I, I I sort of I can't reply to all of them but uh, but she knows that, that we read them mm-hmm. um, and whenever she writes in about the situation over there it definitely personalizes everything for me and and I think that's sort of what's great about this episode is that it helps to personalize the situation as well as show us the political uh, uh, intrigue that's going on she sent an email one time uh, months ago just about the day-to-day stuff going on. Uh, it, it talked about avoiding, you know, a bombing here or there quite by accident. That kind of stuff just absolutely shakes me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't do this sort of thing at all. But I thought, you know, here's an episode where I should use my resources. And I emailed Judy and I said, hey, we're about to record in Sunro. And there's so much here. I just I want your take on it. And I just she wrote a a really long, wonderful email. And I just want to read a a few paragraphs out of it uh, because it, it gave me something to think about trying to contextualize this episode. She said, I think the historic facts would show that we aren't like the Cardassians. 
But can you explain that to people who only remember Israeli soldiers pushing them around? They feel religiously connected to to this holy country. Seems everything is holy here except human lives. Nowadays, Gaza is under the rule of Hamas, not Israel. They see us as enemies and refuse to stop the war with us, so that goes on still. The West Bank has a form of self-rule with their own government and police, but they are not independent. While I'm sure many around the world see Israel as the Cardassian of the story, I find we're in many ways victims as much as the Palestinians trapped in this never-ending conflict because of fear, honor, religion. There's no physical divide between Palestinians and Israelis. We're not on different planets. A lot of Palestinian civilians come to work in Israel every day. When I work, we're going to have a new student from Eastern Jerusalem. There's a lot of normal contact between people. There's never a system of oppression and destruction like with the Cardassians. There's still violence, still a lot of things to be fixed. How does that phrase go? It's complicated. My conclusion, there's some bejor in both us and the Palestinians. I don't think either of us are Cardassians. That role is played by larger countries who had and some still have imperialistic agendas. My suggestion is don't get too carried away by earth politics and remind people that this allegorical story combines elements of many other peoples and situations. Someone from Tibet might see this story another way or someone from China who had experienced Japanese occupation or people in Africa who fought against colonialism or Kashmir or the Kurds in Turkey, etc., etc. So that's just a little slice of what Judy sent. Thank you so much, Judy, because um, it did help contextualize this a bit. Um, I, I, I still wonder, I still ask myself if Star Trek almost took an easy way out, like I said, by making the Cardassians so clearly bad guys and making, if not Kennelly, a bad guy, making him so misguided that he is opposite of the good guy, who in this case is Picard, who's got to figure it out before you know the 48 minute mark. Um, we expose the plot. We get to move on from here. Hmm. Easy. Hmm. Well, easier. <laughs> you know. I don't know. I mean, they're introducing. I'm yeah. trying to figure out. Can you think of another Star Trek plot? I mean, with the exception of maybe, I cannot remember the name of the one where Worf actually had to accept this commendation or oh, sins of the father. Yeah. Okay, or redemption and redemption two. Yeah, I can't think of anything that was quite this complicated at the same time. Sure. I mean, can you, can you, I mean, seriously, can you think of one that was, that was as multi-layered? I mean, the, the faint and the other faint. I mean, there's a private little war, maybe, although it, it didn't actually provide an answer. I mean, in that respect, maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe they are taking the easy way out here because, aha, a bad guy and an idiot yeah. walk into a conflict. Okay. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> right. a private little war, of course, ended with just, ah, I mean, with it, with, and it, seriously, yeah. it seemed like it ended with Gene Roddenberry throwing up his hands going, I don't know. This Honestly, yeah. the best we can do right now is to keep throwing more guns at this because the first one whose side stops getting guns thrown at it, they're the ones to die. And Fair. and yeah. and so, I mean, this one, you're right. I mean, maybe they sort of take an easy way out. At the same time, um, they've, they've constructed a pretty complex scenario. And as we've discussed, generally speaking, they are going to get us out in the 48-minute mark. I have one more thing that I just want to touch on a little bit before we go to our wrap up. Okay. Um, Riker's a jerk. Um, <laughs> you know. um, Riker's job is to be a jerk. Yeah. In but this particular man, situation. His, oh, yeah. No, he's a jerk. But I mean, that, that is his job here. Uh, you've also got to note down here that Jordy is a jerk. And that, that is really disappointing. Yeah. 
That's incredibly disappointing. Well, we, we have an ITIC problem. We, we have a definite ITIC problem right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, Ensign Rowe, yes, she was imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Yes, she made mistakes in her career. She is also a member of Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to earn that position. It's not like she doesn't know the rules. It's not like she doesn't know the structure. It's not like she's incompetent. Well, it is like eight people died because of something she did, and she was in prison until day before yesterday, though. She was. Yeah, yeah she was. I mean, Jordy, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I, I would get a little bit of misgivings. I would get a bit of mistrust. Um, this was obviously shorthand. I mean, Jordy's way over the top with the, I won't turn my back on her, and she shouldn't even be wearing the uniform and all that stuff. Um, yeah. It was still disappointing. I mean, the level of his um, vitriol was a bit, um, well... Like we say, it, 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 it again maybe goes to the gumbification. I mean, we need to we need to yeah. illustrate. So even Jordy, even fun loving, easy going, never met a woman. He was sorry that he wasn't going to be able to date. Even Jordy <laughs> is is looking at her going, man. I no sir, she just shouldn't even be on this ship. Okay, I mean, shouldn't you, even have the uniform. Yeah, you know, they're just, but, taking, they're just taking a shortcut to oh, she's bad news. But what I love is I love how Guinan decides that they're friends therefore they are you know it's such a simple thing it really is you know maybe that's part of the morals meaning messages here but she makes a decision and therefore they are and if only others had done that just for a moment starfleet has learned many truths of the recent attack Captain Picard has learned many truths of his new officer. What then can we learn? From Ensign Rowe. All right, Ken, here we are with a complex, rich episode full of political and personal intrigue. Hmm. But before we get into the morals, meanings, and messages, I pose to you the question of whether or not Ensign Rowe, the title of the episode, not the character, holds up. Um... I think I sort of addressed a lot of this earlier, and I apologize for sort of blurring the lines between the last segment and this one. Uh, someone asked me recently whether I was for the pay model that is coming as we record this with Star Trek uh, 2017. Um, mm. Here in the States, for people who don't know or for people who've forgotten because you're listening 100 years from now. <laughs> how's my robot body holding up, by the way? Um, oh, great. Looks good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, 100 years from now, you're answering? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Um, somebody asked how I felt about the pay model, and uh, what I said uh, was, um, whether I was for it or against it doesn't matter. I'm often against rain, and that does not stop it. There's a little point in being against what's coming. And and I bring all that up to say, it's not like I didn't know that episodes like this one were coming. I didn't, it's not like I didn't know that this time was coming in the Star Trek you know, storytelling. But it's weird uh, to know that we've gotten to them now. There are going to be conspiracies, there are going to be intrigues, there's going to be distrust, and it's going to come from inside in yeah. ways that that it was uh, Gene Roddenberry's hope would not be the case. And so on that cusp, I will tell you, I don't like it. I sort of, I sort of dislike the part where, uh, to tell the good story, we're going to have to say, look, humanity's never going to get past this stuff. It's just not. So so let's go ahead and accept that humanity is never going to get past this stuff, and then we can tell some really great stories. Okay. Now, 
am I going to spend every episode from now on saying, well, it's not Star Trek. It's not the way Gene Roddenberry wanted it. <laughs> I can't do that because, you know, we're signed up for like 14, 15 years of this, which means like another 10 or 11 years of that. And that just seems a little yeah. crazy. Accepting that, that we are in a new sort of brand of storytelling now, like wholeheartedly. And I know you can go back and find times where stuff like this has happened in the past and in, in the episodes that we've watched to this point. But just accepting that, okay, that's where we are now, then I guess I kind of have to adjust how I'm watching it. And so making that adjustment, yes, this episode holds up. I mean, I, we talked about, and it's, it's a bummer, again, that this episode holds up because a lot of the stuff that was going on in 1990, 91, when this, you know, when this episode was uh, produced and, and broadcast, still happening today, 20-some-odd years later, 25, 26 years later, yeah, these are still issues that we that we have to learn or have to learn from. Um, and I guess it's good that it's still there to do that, as long as you're okay with the fact that you know you don't get the you don't get the it's sort of the bright shining, uh, you don't get the beacon on the hill kind of thing anymore. You get the yeah, we're all down in it. So how do we how do we work best through it? Yeah. Um, so I mean, with that caveat, and I don't guess we'll be making that caveat much more because this is the way it's going to be. Uh, yeah, I would say this episode holds up. You just have to understand everything I just said. You have to play that before I answer that question from now on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good what about you, sir? Job. Well, yeah, we'll we'll put that on a loop. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that you know, taken as just a single standalone episode, because mm -hmm. um, I, I really appreciate what you're saying here about here we're, we're meeting this dividing line of Gene Roddenberry Star Trek and then post Gene Roddenberry Star Trek and and how those types of stories are different and, and how the messages may be different or at least expressed in a different way. Um, but I think if I look at the ju just as the story on its own, partly it depends on how much you grok political stories. If you're interested in this whole background, the machinations that led to this moment in history that then led to this moment that led to these people feeling the way that they do, and then these other people trying to express power, then if you're absolutely into that, then there's something to latch on to here and, and make certain parallels to contemporary stories, which also, sadly, just won't go away um, or, or resolve themselves in, in a, a positive way. Um, other than that, though, you also have a story that is held together by the fascinating character of Ensign Rowe. I feel like you could have introduced her in any number of stories, and it still would have been an interesting episode to watch. Mm -hmm. um, partly because the actor is so good, but partly because the writing is so good to bring in a character who can shake things up a bit. You know, um, I talked earlier about my sort of changing attitude in this episode about the sort of Pollyanna-ish crew of the Enterprise. So I'm glad to see somebody who isn't, <laughs> you know? And that's why I like the scenes where she sort of calls them out on their shortcomings. And I think we need more of that. Um, now, that said, I'm also interested to see how she assimilates, there's a word used in the episode a couple of times, um, into that structure. How much of her rough edge gets to stay around. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think this is a great character. It's a great way to introduce the character, but there's also an interesting political story there as well. You may like one of those stories more than the other, but I think they both add up to a thing that definitely holds together. You know, maybe it's not the best of next generation, 
but it is a really good episode. And um, I think a lot of that in large part is due to the strength of the writing and due to the strength of uh, Michelle Forbes. But let's talk about messages because there are a few of them here. So how about you, Ken? A lot of this is undone because Kennelly isn't... He's not Starfleet anymore. He's not Federation anymore. And it goes back. I mm-hmm. mentioned the Corbin might maneuver earlier. I mean, you know, they're on their way away from Baylock and, and you know, good, because he was trying to kill us. And then Kirk says, oh, we have to go back, because that's that's who we say we are. That's the kind of thing that we say we're going to be. Yeah. Um, Kennelly is, I mean, you said he wasn't evil. I'm not 100% certain I agree. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. he's just craven. Yeah. But, I mean, that lends itself really easily to evil. I think. I mean, so he sure. goes in. He tells he tells um, um, Roe, "Hey, offer him all kinds of stuff that we can't offer him." You're right. Yeah. And so you think, "Wow, this guy's this guy's terrible. He's going to he's going to prop up a war." Oh no! It turns out he's just drawing the guy out to get him killed. I'm not. Right. I mean, when you when you go ahead and boil it down that way, I'm not sure how you can say he's not evil exactly, unless he just lives in fear of the Cardassians, or unless he thinks that you know peace, yeah, peace at all cost. As is anything like peace. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and and ultimately he's bound to have taken some oath at some point that included at least a passing reference to the Prime Directive. I mean, he's not right. what he's supposed to be at this point. And he's not even trying. And yet he holds power and he holds sway. And he's, you know, so, so you know, be what it is you're supposed to be. Or at the very least, try. And also, I would say, that, you know, there is a message in here about sort of like trying to find a way to be okay with, with who you are. Uh, Roe is driven uh, first by shame and then by anger, but she's at her best when neither of those things are the thing that are driving her. She's at her best, and, and and honestly, she and everything around her is best served when she says, "I'm no longer ashamed. I can't be this angry. I I just I just need to be." I mean, once she can actually just lay everything out, that's when things actually go well. So yeah, well, that's, I, I think that's, that's she, not presented as you see, Timmy. But I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, once she lets go of her anger, once she lets go of her fear, and once she lets go of her prejudice, which we're, we talked a lot about the prejudice other people felt against her, but I mean, she certainly came on board with it as well. Once she lets go of all of those things, you know, then the universe really opens up for her. So maybe it's partly to do with the the honesty like her personal honesty about who she is within the honesty of the situation you know she she gets to be the whistleblower at, yeah. at, at a moment you know um so both of those things sort of got lifted off of her shoulders um she just needed to kind of fight to get there um and speaking of fighting to get there you know i feel like maybe it wouldn't have been such a hard fight if we go back to what i wrapped up the last segment with which was Riker is a jerk <laughs> and maybe if he hadn't been a jerk to her or somebody else hadn't been a jerk to her, it wouldn't have been such a struggle for her to get to where she needed to be. Hmm. You know? All right. So the, the, there is a little something there about well, that's uh, what Guinan, a little. That is what Guinan was there for, though. It is what Guinan was there for. But I mean, in the story. It, I mean, we don't need you, we don't need Riker to be that because we do have Guinan. No, it's very true. But, you know, you can't rely on your bartender for everything. <laughs> well, Just my, most things. My yeah. hope is if they didn't have a bartender, then maybe the ship's counselor would have stepped up. Oh, there, there is a ship's counselor. There is yes. a ship's counselor. There's yeah, one yeah, who actually, yeah. you know, can sort of read minds and did actually yeah. come in contact. Just saying. Right. 
<laughs> right. I feel like, um, yeah, I totally agree with what you said. And I feel like, you know, the quotation that I used last week on our Darmok episode is just as applicable this week. I talked about the former CIA operative who talked about listening to your enemy because in situations like these, everyone thinks they are right. Mm-hmm. And that something about truly, truly listening, um, which seems to escape many of us, particularly when we reach this high level political conflict. Um, but in that case, it also applies uh, from the larger scale down to the smaller scale. When we talk about Roe as a character, even Picard is not his usual professional self at some points here. He's the one who said, try for diplomacy, then try again and try again and try again. And it takes Guinan just being human, just listening to get to row. Um, she has a great line. She says, truth is in the eye of the beholder. It's true in politics. It's true in a lot of things. So, um, yeah, may, maybe the bartender is, is who we get to learn something from this week. <laughs> it seems. It seems so. Yeah. So I, I think many messages here, many more to pick apart. And I would say that uh, all of that holds up for better or for worse. If we talk about the complex political conflicting messages there. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about the great work being done by, oh, the Roddenberry Foundation and all sorts of tendrils of the Roddenberry machine at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for more Star Trek news, then you can shake a stick at, be sure to check out TrekMovie.com. Ken, for some reason, when you said Roddenberry Machine, I kept thinking, that's you in a hundred years. <laughs> but before we get to that point, next week, Silicon Avatar. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. The Zaz. The Zaz. It is just fun to say. Say it with me. The Zaz. The Zaz. And transmission. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in-person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 